again and welcome to another episode in the podcast called 60-Year-Old Student. Hello, I'm a 60-year-old student at university for the first time. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune brought me here and through studying, I hope to take up arms against these sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. Obviously from Hamlet there, and a wonderful concept of to be or not to be, a very Cartesian question. Who am I? What are we? Cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. We might touch on that a little later on. Or let's say we might touch on some thoughts relating to that a little later on. And I guess most of what I'm going to talk about today, or reflect upon today, is relating to a core of identity, as in who we are. And one little aspect I want to focus on right now is something to do with free will and loosely based around a chapter in a book by Roger Scruton called Philosophy, Principles and Problems. And the chapter in question was entitled Freedom. Freedom, I guess, meaning freedom of will or free will, a perplexing concept, much debated over the years, still debated as much, maybe if not more, even today. So I want to address it in a certain way. Now, obviously, I caveat everything I do in this podcast with the fact that my ideas are probably very naive. I'm just finished my first year undergraduate student reading theology, which includes philosophy, religions of the world and ethics. So my ideas are very new, very, very untested and a seasoned philosopher might shoot me down in flames. And I would love that to happen because that's the only way I can learn and develop my ideas. Maybe some of the ideas don't need shooting down are quite rounded enough to move on from. So imagine you're walking down a street and a man suddenly knocks you to the ground. You'll not be aware of the reason for the action until sometime in the future. You may look around and see a piano falling on the exact spot which you had been passing. Or the man may reach inside your jacket and steal your wallet. Or he may be, have been adversely affected by something out of his control, like a brain hemorrhage. It is not until you know the reason for his actions that you respond with either gratitude and praise, resentment and revenge, or sympathy and compassion. And it is within this human theatre of such complex interpersonal actions that Scruton discusses his thinking on free will. And it's a very interesting angle because it got me thinking more about it along those lines. Scruton asks whether philosophy can restore faith in the concept of freedom of will, which science has gone far to uh, dismiss. Scientific determinism holds free will as an illusion, suggesting that causes and effects that stretch back to a time before we even existed determine the decisions we make. And that's true in a way. I guess when I think about it, the who I am is very much based around nature and nurture. Now, from the nurture point of view, that must be how I was raised, how I was brought up by my parents. I was quite lucky. I was brought up in a very uh, loving atmosphere, which impressed upon me the, the need for compassion to others in our community. Something I didn't always do, but at least it was there and I tried hard to. Now, that came, the upbringing obviously came from the two natures of my parents. Now, where did that come from? Obviously, that came from the upbringing and the natures of their parents. So you could say that a lot of my nature today is influenced by my grandparents. But then where did that come from? This is regressive. It goes back, it's contingent, and it goes back to parents and generations way down the line. I suppose, really, you could take this back to Big Bang, go back for generations and generations. So who I am right now has been determined by other things, other people, the nature of the universe, 
the nature of the history of the country and civilization and culture that I was brought up in, which had nothing to do with me, no influence whatsoever. And yet all of those things came together to create the who I am from a nurture point of view. I've been nurtured in this way. As far as the nature is concerned, that's a different question, I think. I don't know what I think about that. A nature is something that is the who I am that's decided from something else, from another place. The nature of who I am. Where did it come from? Did that exist before my conception? It can't have been shaped. The nature, the nurture, yes, but the nature, the who I am deep down. And there are many other names attributed to this, which could be soul or spirit, that which animates my body, let's say. Did it have a life before I was born? Did it have an existence? Will it have an existence after this body has ceased to exist? And it is within that nature side of things that I think there is a window of opportunity for free will. Yes, determinism must count for a large percentage of the who I am and the how I behave. But there is the nature, which is a very, well, I wouldn't quantify a percentage on that, but that must also have some say in this argument and cannot be readily explained. It lies outside of the remit of science. It's beyond the rational, let's say. So as we can see, it's a complex argument. And problems arise because we fail, Scruton thinks, to ask what we are doing in describing a free action. He says we should surrender the notion of freedom, which arises when we attribute praise or blame to the consequences of an action, and look instead at the practice of holding people to account for what they do. Human relations depend on cooperation in the desire for retribution, justice and ultimately equilibrium. I think that's so important. The requirement to place responsibility on a person for what they do and what they fail so to do is how the human world is formed and indispensable to our survival. Admission of fault, willingness to atone, forgiveness and restoration of peace can usually be achieved if the wrongdoer assumes responsibility. However, if this is found wanting, then judgment and retribution through punishment by law is sought, as resentment and desire for revenge remain with the victim. If we sweep away these concepts in favour of deterministic causes, then we lose a human world at our peril. There cannot be a science of man, Scruton suggests, which makes a myth out of the interpersonal relations that form what it is to be human. We cannot study scientifically how we respond to each other as persons, because that then makes objects out of subjects. And it is easy to destroy things that are only seen as objects as the horrors of the 20th century have shown. So I like that. That's right. You cannot make a myth out of what it is to be human, just so that science can describe everything in its deterministic way. The problem with determinism is that if we are not responsible for our actions, then how can we take moral responsibility for them? Even Hitler gets off the hook with determinism. And the regressive argument places all excuses, decisions and actions right back to Big Bang, as I mentioned earlier. Is humanity really willing to cross that Rubicon? Determinism relies upon the predictability of universal laws, but in the quantum field, we know of only probabilities. So determinism straight away comes under scrutiny. Things are probable and not certain. And it is within that gap that I believe lies the spark of free decision, which ultimately binds a person to the moral responsibility of their actions. And I think within that gap is the nature of a person as opposed to their nurture. Being interpersonal gives us a better handle on the world 
than cold scientific reductionism, which sees objects servile to causes. As human beings, we transcend this to become subjects operating on an entirely different level. If somebody smiles, it is not usual to immediately analyse the action as muscles moving around the mouth in response to chemical reactions in the brain. That would surely be a little odd. How can we respond with love, admiration, contempt or hatred to an object? We do not interrelate with each other on a scientific objective basis, but rather on a human emotional level. Sir Peter Strawson, who wrote a groundbreaking set of essays under the title Freedom and Resentment, saw interpersonal attitudes as primordial and part of the general framework of human life. As there is no need for feelings within determinism, then we can't help but believe in free will, as these feelings are deep within us. Strawson was opposed to the thought that civilised behaviour would treat and not punish a prisoner, and saw the adoption of an objective attitude to another human as an object of social policy to be managed or handled or cured or trained as dehumanising and denying of a certain kind of dignity of what it is to be human. Determinism, which explains the nurture of my character, will always predict that I hand back the dropped purse to the old lady in the street, but the probability factor leaves a tiny percentage of opportunity that I may not do that, and it is there in that wafer-thin realm of possibility that I think my free will exists. I could decide to keep it, or return it, and the free will I have at that exact moment in time is mine to take, which is probably more influenced by my nature rather than my nurture. Now somebody asked me the other day, who are you? And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting question. Cartesian question, who am I? And I thought, well, I can't even answer that because the who I am is not the identifier of my name associated with my features. The, the index finger on my left hand is not who I am or my leg or my arm, it's not who I am. It's what animates me, I suppose. Call it the soul, call it the spirit, whatever it is, it doesn't matter, they're just words. But it's that which animates me, deep down inside. The way I behave, the way I think, is all part of. Nurture could be influenced by pain, suffering, the slings and arrows of life. But I wouldn't define myself by that. I'm not going to define who I am by what has happened to me. And I'm not going to define who I am by my current social status. Let's say I won't let money identify or define who I am or any other circumstance of my life. The who I am, I think, goes a lot deeper. It is the who I am, deep down inside, struggling and fighting through the undergrowth of life to really represent itself in its truest form. It's not the who I am that, whose life fell apart and, and is still struggling to be rebuilt and finds me here at university. That's not really who I am. It's not the past, the career I had before. That's not really who I am. Deep down, the fundamental character of my true identity. I think that goes deeper. And I think ultimately, well, let me think about that some more because if the who I am, I don't think I could answer that question until after that which animates my body has left my body. Because if there is life after death, let's say if the, that which animates me has a life beyond this body, then I won't know who I am until I get a grasp on the ultimate truth, the ultimate reality, which won't happen until I've departed this body, this vessel. But if there is nothing, if there is just blackness, and it was that which was just contained in my body, well, I still won't know that until after that has ended anyway, so I can't answer the question. And by then it'll be too late because I'll be dead, I'll be gone. I can't answer that question. So I can't really answer honestly or profoundly, who am I? 
until after I cease to exist in this bodily form. I think it ultimately drills deep down into the ethic of who I am. And I don't know where that came from. That's probably in the nature of identity. And I don't know where you can take that because you won't know about that until after you're passed away. And if there is a life beyond this life, the ethic, what do I mean by that? I suppose it means the real true person of who I am. That often is not how I deport myself in society because I'm affected by the usual human characteristics of envy, frustration, anger, love and joy, compassion and frustration in life. The slings and arrows of life make me act in maybe angry ways or I may say or think things which are completely obviously unreasonable. They're just a reaction and a projection of how I'm feeling at the time which is caught up in the heat of anger or frustration or annoyance, paranoia or fear which are only extensions and projections of lack of my self-esteem, let's say. So I'm willing to admit all of this and really try and face this head on. No, the ethic of who I am is not those things because those are just the superficial attributes of who I am being buffeted around in the stormy seas of life. I think really the genuine who I am is who I really, really as the potential of who I could be and who I ultimately, I guess, really, really want to be, which I think is probably, without wanting to sound big-headed, a good person who has compassion and empathy for others, who always wants to help others with no, with no motivation of return or selfishness. I do a lot of things to make people's day, especially in my part-time job at the cathedral. I go out of my way to do things for other people so that they might be happy, so that they might get what they want, to make their moment, to make their day. And I, don't, I do not do that seeking a return. And I don't do it through selfish uh, reasons, either just to make me feel good in the moment, because sometimes when I do things for other people that are good for them, it's not easy for me to do that. And it may cost me something, even if it's just a ticking off by one of my supervisors. I don't do it for gain. And I don't know why I do it, therefore. It's just to, for, for the good of somebody else. And what's that motivated from? A clinical psychologist would probably be able to read deeper into that. But I get nothing back from these things by way of physical services or goods or just making myself feel good. I don't do these things just so that I can feel good about myself for five minutes. Because sometimes I don't feel good about myself for doing good to others. Because it means that I've had to do something that maybe I shouldn't do. And these are, these are only superficial. Or maybe I go out of my way to do something for them and they're not very satisfied or still not very happy and are still rude or offish in return. So, But I still do it and I'll still keep going um, because I think good will always overcome and outstrip anything else in the world that is lesser than good. So where was I going with that then? I'm talking about nature and the ethic of what it is to be human. Yes, I think that the human characteristic, the seriously who you are, is based around the ultimate deeply embedded ethic of how you live your life or how you judge how you should live your life or it's the framework for which you would really like to live your life in its truest form if you weren't constantly buffeted by life which sometimes makes you act otherwise. So yes, who are you? I don't know and I probably won't know until I maybe 
step forward into the greatest pilgrimage, into the greatest unknown territory, and and set my sight on maybe what I consider to be the beatific vision, the ultimate reality, the unmoved mover. Whatever that is, it's a complete mystery. It's kind of exciting. But talking about identity and who we are, I, th- I want to really finish off with this amazing book I've just discovered. And it's by an author with probably one of the best names I've come across for ages, Merlin Sheldrake. How fantastic is that? And it's a book called Entangled Life. How fungi make our worlds and change our minds and shape our futures. And through his studies of fungi and bacteria and lichens, he's also touched on identity. Who are we as humans? I just want to find this. You know, reading these days is a totally different experience as a student. Every book I read from now on, I have to carry a pad of post-it notes with me and a pencil because if I come across something that really leaps out of the page and means a lot and really strikes me and slaps me in the face with an amazing bit of philosophical insight, I have to make a note of it. I have to stick a a sticker in the book so I can come back and identify it later on uh, and use it in in one of my research essays and use it in my bibliography. But um, of course, that means reading completely different now. I've got to constantly be marking things up so the book is just full of, got lots of post-it notes sticking out of the top. And you have to do that. There's nothing worse than remembering something, including it in an essay, and then having to go back and find out where you got it from And you might remember the book and the author, but then whereabouts in the 800-odd pages of the book? Where was it? Um, And then, of course, if you do that and you've forgotten also to write down the page number and all the bibliographical details, you've got to go back and do that at a later date. And you're just adding so much work when there's a deadline facing you that you've just got to do all of this legwork early on and up front while you're reading to save you time at the end. But apart from the most amazing piece of insight, regarding slime mould that I've never ever knew about and maybe I could touch upon that in another podcast he says that every human has a microbiome right so he concludes that your body is a planet I love that your body is a planet we are all ecosystems you carry around more microbes than your own cells he says page 80 in the introduction and there are more bacteria in your gut than stars in our galaxy. I read stuff like that and absolutely love it. So we are ecosystems. We are planets. And there are 40 trillion odd microbes that live in and on our bodies. And at a conference he attended, suddenly after days of discussing this, the notion of the individual, he said, had deepened and expanded beyond recognition. To talk about individuals made no sense anymore, he says. Page 19. So much in daily life and experience, not to mention philosophical, political and economic systems, depend on individuals, he writes. And it can be hard to stand by and watch the concept of individuality dissolve. So where does it leave us? Me, mine, everyone, anyone. He said he had to revisit culturally treasured notions of identity, autonomy and independence. Because there are these trillions of things that we carry around that live on us and in us, that even probably determine how we behave, our health moving forward, our longevity, many, many more things that we might even consider or as yet even know about. So how can we talk about ourselves as being an individual anymore? And what does that mean? We are planets, these ecosystems, bustling, teeming with life, 
some of which could influence how we think, could influence the state of our minds. Okay, well, thank you for listening. And until the next time, keep going, keep believing, keep doing what you do. Because I feel, in my 60s, back at university, I'm just getting started. (laughs)